Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, it turns to the Gospel of Mark. In your New Testament, it is Matthew, then Mark. We are in Mark chapter 2 this morning, and we'll get a bleed over a little bit into chapter 3. And as we turn to God's Word, we see it as the authority of us, His people, His church. But we also need to be reminded at times that this isn't the, the, the voice of an authority. It is that, but it's also the voice of the Beloved. <laughs> It's the voice of one who loves us, who wants to speak to us, who wants to show us who he is and what he's like and how he acts in this world and how he wants us to act. And so we turn to Mark chapter 2 with that in mind. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 26, 23, this is the voice of the beloved. One Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as, he, as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of uh, Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the, the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And they looked around at them, and he looked around at them with anger. Grieved at their hardness of heart, and he said to them, Stretch to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out, immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we're asking that you would bless the hearing of your word this morning, that you would help us to have eyes to see and ears to hear the greatness and the glory of Jesus Christ. May we grow in our knowledge and love of him. It's in Christ's name that we pray this. Amen. You've got to love Mark and the way he writes his gospel. So far in Mark chapter 2, we have a series of conflicts. We've had three conflicts so far in chapter 2. The first one was over forgiveness. He heals a paralytic and and as he, the paralytic comes down, he says, your sins are forgiven first. And the Pharisees question in their hearts, who has authority to do this? And so there's a confrontation as Jesus answers the questions of their hearts. He was questioned over him how he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, how he was, as a noble teacher, one who has authority to teach the law, sitting with such people and eating and dining, having fellowship with such people. He was questioned there in a confrontation, a conflict ensued. And then a conflict came over fasting and why Jesus and his disciples, they're eating, but John and the Pharisees, their disciples, they're fasting. And now Mark adds two more conflicts here. The end of chapter 2 ends in a conflict. The beginning of chapter 3 is another conflict. And both of these two conflicts are kind of surrounding the Sabbath. Now, now conflict to us is a, it can be a spectacle in itself. You want to look and you're interested just because there's conflict. Like, I want to see what's going on. I want to peer into this and see what it's doing. It can be entertaining, but Mark has a special purpose for these conflicts. You see, he doesn't give us a ton of content of Jesus' teaching often. As he called Matthew, 
Is he called Levi? You know, he was walking by the sea. He was teaching out there. We don't get to hear the content of that teaching from Mark. But then he goes to Matthew and he, he starts talking to him and he calls him to follow. And then we see some of the, the conflict that ensued after that. But what Mark does over and over and over again as he includes different material and doesn't include some material that we think we'd want, he's aiming to show us as clearly as he can Jesus. He's aiming to show us who this man is and what he came to do. And what conflict can do is it can be really, really clarifying. We know this in our own lives as well. When we get into conflict, we think, well, I'm acting out of who I'm, I'm just not really me. No, conflict is actually really clarifying. That's actually where you are. That is you. Conflict is clarifying in seeing where other positions, others' positions are, right? They draw lines in the sand in a sense. Oh, that's where they stand on this. They reveal your heart. They reveal your identity. And they do the same with Jesus as well. When we have conflict, Jesus has conflict in chapter 2, beginning in chapter 3. It shows us where the Pharisees are. It shows us their hearts. And it shows us where Jesus is and his unique identity. And so here we have two conflicts over the Sabbath. They get to show us the the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees, but that's only a subplot for Mark. No, the main story of these conflicts is who Jesus is. That he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That he's the Son of Man who has authority to restore, not just the Sabbath, but other things as well. And so Jesus does much more than just address The Sabbath in these conflicts, he continues his mission to make blessings flow far as the curse is found, and that's what we read about. Verse 23, it says that one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. Imagine them just going through a field of standing grain, and they're going, and they're grabbing a snack to eat on their way. This was certainly something that was allowable in the Scripture. In Deuteronomy, there's an allowance for it from God says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, you're not getting it to make a profit and to store grain up for the winter. It's just you're getting it, you need it at that time, you can take some. You see this in the book of Ruth, right? Ruth kind of goes to Boaz's field, she happens upon it, and starts kind of gathering grain. Same kind of idea. That was okay, that was permissible, was allowable, that was a good thing. Now, the Pharisees are there, and we don't know what, why they're there. Are they creeping around? Are they like, following? They just send a tail on them, like, well, come get us if something interesting happens, if he starts doing something strange. Maybe that's what they were doing, and, and here they're on the move on the Sabbath, so they're going to count their steps to make sure there's not too many steps on the Sabbath, because you're not supposed to do that. Maybe that's what they're doing, creeping around, following. But they're watching, and they've been stirred up by three previous conflicts already. So here they are, stirred up already, and they're watching. And in verse 24, they were saying... Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Their problem wasn't with them gathering grain or even them traveling. Their problem was that happening on the Sabbath. Their problem was a Sabbath problem. You see, they held closely to the Sabbath commandment. There was a Sabbath commandment. It was given in the Ten Commandments. It calls for abstaining from labor Because God rested on the seventh day, you abstain from labor. We see this in the book of Exodus, chapter 20. Back in the the, uh, when the Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20, we see this in verse 8 of the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath day, to keep it holy. So it's a serious day. Keep it holy. God's holy, you should be holy. Here's a day that is to be kept as holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. 
For in six days the Lord has made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he made it holy. So the Sabbath day was a day of rest unto the Lord. It was a way of expressing obedience to God. It was a way of showing that I'm putting my work in its proper place that God wants to put it in. That I'm actually arranging my calendar in the way that God wants me to arrange it. It's a very practical way to honor and serve the Lord is to rest on that seventh day. This is what he has ordered. They are to it unto the Lord, remembering God, remembering creation that he created by the word of his power. But on that seventh day, he rested. And so it's putting life and work in its proper place. So it was a central role in the life of Israel. It marked Israel off as God's special people. Like, the Assyrians weren't having a Sabbath. Like, Greeks weren't having a Sabbath. Like, the, the Israelites, they had a Sabbath. They were the special people of God. They were in a covenant with God. And part of that covenant was that they obey His commandments. Here's one of them. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't work on that day. It marked them off as part of God's people. It was a practical way to order their lives around God and in submission to God, in obedience to Him, as He is the one who is Lord. In the Old Testament, and the New Testament this carries through as well, we see this, this title over and over and over and over again of God. He is Lord. He has authority. And so one way they were to submit to Him as Lord is to keep the Sabbath day holy and not do work. It was a serious violation to violate the Sabbath. You were condemned and to be put to death. And so Sabbath was serious. And when Jesus arrives, as we see it picked up in Mark, when he arrives, more has been added to these Sabbath rules and laws and regulations than just what we read in the book of Exodus. More had been added on, not just by other laws, but by traditions, oral traditions that had been passed down from scribes, experts of the law, the the legal uh, analysts of the law. They had added on some extra regulations. Many of these were added by Jewish rabbis, and they had added several restrictions. And so when we see the Pharisees here, the Pharisees are recipients of and participants with this rigorous tradition full of all sorts of Sabbath restrictions. They debated Sabbath rules often, what was or was not acceptable. And one author says this about his favorite debate. He says, my favorite debate is this. This was a real debate. If an egg is found under a hen on the Sabbath morning, may it be eaten? He says it's a technical question. When, after all, is the labor performed? The hen is not available for interrogation. If the egg was the product of labor on the Sabbath, it is not to be eaten. If, however, the labor was done on some other day and it just appears on the Sabbath, then it's a gift. Like this is where Jesus walks in. There was another debate going on. If an elderly woman fell in the field on the Sabbath day, could you kind of take a stretcher and go out and get her? Here was the debate. right? If you take a stretcher and you, you put her on the stretcher and you're dragging this back to the house, then those two poles that are dragging along the ground could be making a furrow in the ground work. Only if she was in some sort of life-threatening situation could she be carried back, some thought, Or else you just leave her out there because you don't want to do work on the Sabbath. She'll be alive when you find her the next day. This is a flavor of what Jesus is stepping into when he comes. This is why we see the questions from the Pharisees here. As they watch the disciples go through the standing grain. This is why they come. No one's life is endangered here. The, the, The disciples aren't skin and bones needing food right this minute. So why are they working? Why are they plucking any grain? Can't they just wait? Their question 
had been about the disciples. And we don't even see who they direct it to, but Jesus steps up to answer. Now, he did the same thing in chapter 2, verse 16, where they question his disciples, and Jesus steps up to answer. Jesus is a really good shepherd who knows how to protect his sheep. He actually does that for us as well, who are in Christ. Accusations and questions come, and we can actually say, well, Jesus will answer that for you. He does that here. He steps up on their behalf, and he says to them in verse 25, have you never read what David did? Now, this is a shot. Now, these are experts of the Old Testament, and he asks them, have you, have you never read? Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Biathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus meets their question with a question of his own. And he actually questions them on something that they should have been experts with, but he takes them back to the Scripture, to the Old Testament, to a story of David found in 1 Samuel. Now, the context is interesting that David was fleeing for his life. David was fleeing from King Saul. David had already been anointed the king, but Saul was still the king. And David is actually working with and for him, but Saul doesn't appreciate it. So Saul tries to take his life over and over and over again. And this story comes from a time when David is fleeing for his life from Saul, who is surely trying to kill him. And that's where we pick up in chapter 21, 1 Samuel, verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women, and David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day that it is taken away. So here's an instance, Jesus says, of something like what's going on in Mark chapter 2. But if you're like me, you find that story a bit confusing. Right, what are the connections to Mark chapter 2 here? Right, Jesus seems to be taking up issue with the Sabbath. Right? That's the Pharisees' questions about the Sabbath. And Jesus points to a story in 1 Samuel 21 that we actually don't see any explicit reference to the Sabbath. Now, it could be that David showed up on the Sabbath. We don't know. So maybe there's a connection on the Sabbath. But here are the connections that we do see. David is the anointed one of God. He comes with a, a small company of people with him. And he's going on his way, and he is in need. Jesus is the anointed one of God with a small company of men with him. And it seems as if they're doing, having some sort of need. And here's what both of them do. David and his men, they do something unlawful. That's what Jesus says by eating this bread, by taking this bread. Jesus and his disciples are doing something unlawful. So that seems to be the connections to 1 Samuel chapter 21. And what Jesus is doing is he's using these connections to pull the Pharisees along to see something much, much bigger in the story. Verse 27, back in, back in Mark. He says to them, The Sabbath 
was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So that's his conclusion from the story. He says, have you not heard about this story? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It wasn't lawful to eat the bread, but there was a sense of danger and a sense of urgency with David and his men, so they ate that bread. There was a, a valid exception, in other words. Ahimelech judged that David's needs took precedent over the law. There was a, a judgment being made by a priest that there was, here's some precedent over Levitical law. This is a valid exception because it seems as if the intent of the law wasn't broken when David ate. And that's what Jesus is saying about his men right now. The intention of the law is not being broken as we walk through this field and we're plucking this grain. And that's the issue that Jesus brings to the front. See, there's a right relationship between the law and people. Between what God has said and the people he said it to. There's a divine intention of the law. You see, the law was meant to be a gift. We don't think of laws as gifts, but they're, they're, it's a gift, The law is expressing who God is. I'm holy, see? Look at all these laws. It's it's expressing his will. Here's how I want you to live. Here's how you can live in relationship with me. It's an expression of who God is, of what he wants. There's some divine intention here. There's some goodness here. This is how you are made to live. This is how it works best. So the law is a gift. It's how you can live in right relationship with God under his good reign, his good rule. And so Sabbath then was made to be for the good of people. It was made to be a blessing to them, to be a help to them, to be an aid for them. It was made for man. So it was to be good for people, to be a blessing. So in other words, Sabbath has a right relationship with humanity. And it wasn't made, it wasn't intended to be, it wasn't meant to be a restrictive day, a a burdensome day. So if Sabbath was a burden, then the problem was not with the Sabbath rule, law. The problem was with man. Either his own sin and his relation to that law, I don't want to keep it, I'm not doing that, I'd rather work, I'd rather do all this. The the problem could be there, or it could be, as we see in our story, outsiders saying, no, there are more restrictions here, so this doesn't work. That could be a problem with the Sabbath as well. But the problem is not the Sabbath law itself. The problem is with man. So what Jesus is saying is there's a divine intention to the Sabbath and then it's not being broken as my disciples are plucking grain. The Sabbath was made for man. So the Sabbath is made for man and has this divine intention that has some, to the letter of the law, some exceptions as David's stories show, then it is not to be a day that's restrictive. It's not to be a day that's to be a burden. And if that's true, then I think a few authors have it right when they say this. Then the question becomes not only what constitutes a legitimate exception, but also whose interpretation is authoritative. Now we're getting after it. Right? What's a legitimate exception and who gets to say it's a legitimate exception? And that's where Jesus turns with his answer in verse 28. He says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, where does he come up with this? It seems like he throws this answer out of left field. Why does he answer in this way? The authors continue and they say that the issue is not of Sabbath, but of Christology. In other words, the heart of the matter isn't about a rule and regulation. It's about who do we think Jesus is? 
And how do we respond to who he is? And that's where Jesus is going with his answer here. Mark's aim throughout the whole of his gospel so far has been to show readers the unique identity of Jesus. And here's this conflict story about the Sabbath, and it is trying to do the same thing. It's not trying to show us something primarily about the Sabbath, but primarily about Jesus. And up to this point, the Pharisees have been interpreting the Sabbath, have they not? They're the ones questioning. In other words, they're in the place of authority. They're the ones that are asking these questions. They're the one that thinks that something's off. They're the interpreters of the Sabbath, as if they have the authority over it. And they're the ones who question And Jesus answers, and they're speaking back and forth to him as if he is not the one who has authority to say or to interpret. They were asking about exceptions. They were interpreters. They were authorities on the Sabbath. And Jesus simply asserts here in the midst of all this Sabbath question and answer, no, it's the Son of Man that's the Lord of the Sabbath. But who is the Son of Man? What does it even mean to be the Son of Man? The Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite self-designations. It's his favorite title that he uses. He uses it more than other titles. I actually love that he uses the title Son of Man. I wrote a whole paper on just that, the Son of Man, in Mark. So I'm excited about talking about the Son of Man. It's an ambiguous title. What comes to mind? Most of the time when we think of Son of Man, we think Jesus is referring to his humanity. And that Son of God is speaking to his divinity. But both of those would be a little bit off. Son of God has more connotations than that. Son of Man is certainly speaking more than that. We look in the Son of Man, we can find some content for it in the Old Testament. If you look in Numbers chapter 23, or follow along on the screen, it says that God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Now, Son of Man there is speaking of human. He's not human. In Psalm chapter 8, he says, what is, what is man that you're mindful of him? The Son of Man that you care for him. Another reference to Son of Man as humanity. But then we find this great reference to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Like a a bomb is getting ready to drop in the middle of what we think of Son of Man just being human. In Daniel chapter 7, brief context here, is that there's this vision that Daniel gets a four ferocious beast. Right? There's, There's this kingdom of Babylon is portrayed as a lion with eagle's wings. That'd be awesome. It's a ferocious beast. Persia is represented as this bear. Greece is this leopard. Rome is this this indescribably ferocious beast. And in the middle of this vision with all of these beasts, we see the throne. We see the Ancient of Days, which is God, and one comes to him. That's where we pick up in verse 13. And I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all kingdoms, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. In this, in this midst of these visions of these ferocious beasts representing these kings and kingdoms, they are ones that are going to pass away. And in the midst of that vision, here comes one that's different. He's not a ferocious beast. It's the Son of Man. And he's given a kingdom as well, an eternal Dominion and eternal reign. This is a picture of God's kingdom that is going to ultimately conquer and reign over all of our other kingdoms and hold dominion over all. And it's given to the Son of Man. So in stark contrast to the beast, one like the Son of Man approaches and receives the kingdom, eternal reign and dominion from the Ancient of Days, from God. The Son of Man then has an everlasting rule. He has a kingdom that cannot be destroyed. He has a dominion that will never be broken 
And so in other words, this son of man in Daniel chapter 7 is not just a man. This son of man is divine. Then we read a little bit further in Daniel chapter 7 in verse 18. The saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. So the Son of Man got the kingdom, and now the saints are getting the kingdom. Verse 22, we read again, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Verse 27 again, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the peoples of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. So in other words, this kingdom is possessed by the saints and the Son of Man. So we have one like the Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. He's receiving eternal dominion and rule over all. And it seems as if he reigns with saints. He's a representative figure. He, he, he is the first among these people. And so the Old Testament Son of Man is a human being, yes. But he's more than that. He's also a divine ruler with an eternal kingdom who represents and rules along with his people. That's the Son of Man background when we get to the New Testament. So that's the shell of what we get when Jesus says, the Son of Man. A little bit ambiguous, right? Not something that's easy to put your finger on. Definitely speaking of more than just humanity. When Jesus, when he says, Son of Man, he's speaking of more than I'm just human. He's speaking a lot more. But what it is, is that it's, it's adequately ambiguous. It, it doesn't have the connotations that Messiah would have. When you would come and say, I'm the Messiah... That had all sorts of expectations from the Jews, especially the Pharisees. They'd be thinking, oh, here comes another David. What does that have? That has political overtones. That has ruling overtones in ways that Jesus doesn't want to follow. As his kingdom is going to be set up a little bit differently than what they think. They're thinking a Messiah is coming. He's going to crush our enemies. He's going to reign and rule. He's a political government leader. And Jesus is that, but he's more than that. And he's getting to that, Right? So he says and uses this title often, Son of Man, to avoid some of those expectations. And it was a title that remained vague enough that it didn't draw all those expectations. It didn't stir antagonism. When he says the Son of Man, they don't get up in arms and say, how could you call yourself the Son of Man? They're thinking back and like, well, I think I heard Son of Man in Psalm 8 and Daniel 7, but that was confusing. So I don't know really what he's saying. I don't know what he's getting at. And that's what Jesus wanted. So maybe they would have thought of these Old Testament texts, but it confused them or disarmed them in some way. And so it becomes his favorite self-designation. As if the Son of Man is this empty cup, has no expectations, nothing in it, and Jesus fills the content with whatever he wants. I'll decide what you think of when you think of Son of Man, because he's filling in the content. And so what content does Jesus use? Well, we'll look back to Mark. In Mark chapter 2, verse 10, he used it for the first time, and here's what he said but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In chapter 2, verse 28, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So what is the Son of Man doing so far? He is claiming divine authority. I have authority on earth right now in the present to forgive sins. That's something that only belonged to God, and Jesus is saying that's me. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. In fact, the authority of Jesus and his kingdom is one of Mark's favorite themes. And the Son of Man is one who has authority to forgive on earth. He has authority over Sabbath. So that brings us back to the Sabbath issue. Remember the issue. It wasn't specifically about Sabbath. It was about who Jesus is. It was about Christology. 
It's an issue of authority. Who gets to interpret the Sabbath and its intent? Who gets to talk about its exceptions? And Jesus masterfully inserts himself into that space and says, Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And I am Lord of that Sabbath. So to reject Jesus and his words here is not to reject his interpretation of the Sabbath. It's not merely to reject his interpretation of the Sabbath. It's to reject the Lord of the Sabbath. What we're seeing in this question and answer is a collision of kingdoms, which is exactly what Jesus came to do. He pronounced the kingdom of God is at hand. He is saying there is a rival kingdom to all other kingdoms now. It is the kingdom of God, and it is at hand in me, and it is on a collision course with all other kingdoms. And here's what we're seeing right here, a throwdown of two kingdoms. The Lord of the Sabbath is having his say, and he's being questioned by those who are of another dominion, another realm. So Jesus is the one who has authority, and they question Jesus as if they're the Sabbath interpreters, revealing what? Their unbelief in Jesus' authority, their unbelief in Jesus as the Son of Man, as the one who has the right to say and not say what happens here. And so what's going on is that it's just rubbing at the Sabbath, but that's not the main and core issue here. Now, Sabbath is probably not the problem for us. It's probably not where where we rub with Jesus' authority the most. I don't know if you guys took a Sabbath yesterday on the Sabbath, but likely you didn't buck Jesus' authority there. But there is likely a place where we are rubbing up against Jesus' authority. There are areas where our interpretation and Jesus' interpretation differs. And in those areas, someone is claiming authority. So there are likely places in our lives where our interpretation of how things should be and Jesus' are different, and we claim authority because we think that our interpretation is better. Jesus comes and he says, repent and believe. And many of us might say, yeah, repent and believe in general. Yes, we are all for that. But what if he's calling us to repentance in that one area that you don't want him to call you into repentance to? Who gets the say there? Maybe it's in your relationships. Maybe it's with your checkbook. Maybe it's with your time. Who has authority in those places? Not just in general, I like to repent and I think I should do that, but in that area that you don't want to leave behind and follow Jesus, who is the authority in that area? Who gets the say there? The question isn't mainly practical. It's Christological. In other words, it's tied to your belief. Who do you think Jesus is? Does he have authority to tell you to repent in that spot or not? Is Jesus the one who is Lord there? So it makes me think, are there places in our lives where we think that we can see things rightly, where we think we can interpret apart from Jesus, apart from the Son of Man, apart from the Lord of the Sabbath? The Pharisees, they had Sabbath figured out. They didn't need the Lord of the Sabbath to come and give them any interpretations. They had told us about the egg. They told us what to do with the elderly woman. Leave her there. They didn't need the Lord of the Sabbath to come and help them. What about us? Do you need the Lord of your relationships to come and help you? To be your authority? You need the Lord of your time to come and help you figure out how to spend your life. Do you need the Lord of your emotions to come and tell you, here's how this should go. Do you need help in any of those areas? Or is the Son of Man not needed? Is your interpretation already sufficient When we think that kind of way, we are living under the delusion that our authority and our interpretation is better. 
We may think that it's better to live this way because maybe it gives us some sort of temporary comfort, but there is only long-term harm in that. Look at what Jesus does with his, his authority here. As the Lord of the Sabbath, he restores it. He restores it to its rightful place. Right? The intention of the Sabbath wasn't being broken as the disciples were just getting a small snack. And I'm guessing that while they're talking about this, they're like, let's put some away because it might get shut down pretty soon. So they're eating away. And Jesus is saying, like, this is okay. This isn't breaking the divine intention here. And so there's a rightful place of the Sabbath that needs to be restored to man. He wants it to make a blessing to all those who would actually follow him. And so the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And Jesus is using his authority to speak into this and say that this is a good design and I'm restoring it back to that. It has been hijacked by other teachers, by oral traditions that aren't from the Lord and I'm taking it back. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he does with his authority all the time. He restores relationships back to their proper design. He restores emotions back to their proper design. He restores the core of our being back to its proper design. That's what Jesus, Jesus does with his authority. He's a better Lord. His interpretation is better. It may not feel like it, may not seem like it, but to submit to his authority is better. He is the son of man, and his authority and his reign is good. So he does a good thing here, using his authority for good, as he always does. And so this conflict with the Pharisees, you think, all right, like he's really told them now, he took them back to like what they would say is their area of expertise in the law and in the Old Testament, and he schooled them. Right, so now it's over. Right? The, the Sabbath question is now over, isn't it? He claimed authority. He's the Lord. Right? No, it's not over. Get another conflict story. With the Pharisees front and center again. And again, this is the next and the fifth conflict story that we see from Mark. And the Sabbath again is the rub with Jesus' authority. Verse 1 of chapter 3. Again he entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus. Again, they're creeping around. Watching Jesus' every move. And they watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. They watch with uh, malintent. They watch with evil in their hearts. I, I think it's interesting that they, they don't watch to see if Jesus can heal here. Maybe they're already convinced of that. They've seen it happen over and over again. Like a paralytic dropped down in front of them and he told them to get up. They saw that. And so they don't even question if Jesus can heal here. It seems as if they assume that. But they want to watch to see if he will heal. Why? Because it's on the Sabbath again. They've already rejected Jesus' interpretation of the Sabbath. They've rejected the Lord of the Sabbath. They've received their own authority, their own interpretation over him. And so they're watching with malintent. And so the stage is set. We have the Sabbath. We have Jesus there. And we have a situation. There's a man with a withered hand. So all the stage is set. It's all public right here on the Sabbath, and we're going to see what happens. In verse 4, 3 and 4, And he said to the man with a withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Jesus draws his hearers to reflect. Should the Sabbath of all days be a day of doing good? Or evil? Be a day to bring life or to bring death? Should it be a day where good is withheld? Well, the answer is really easy, right? We just heard you talk about this. There's a way easier case now than it was in the grain field. 
Right? That was a little bit more blurry, and you talked about David, and I, we're unclear about that. But this one, all right, slam dunk, this is easy. You're the Lord of the Sabbath. You said that Sabbath was made for man. Right? So surely, this is for him. That's for his good. So do good. That's the answer here. Do good. We get it. All right? we, we messed up before. We get it. But the question only receives what? Silence. And their silence is deafening. So deafening that it provokes Jesus. Verse 5, it says that he looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart. Again, if there's things that we are questioning in our hearts of Jesus, that doesn't escape his gaze. He sees their hearts. He can hear them in their silence. And here's what it provokes in him. Anger. Grief. Because they're so hard. They have made the Sabbath life-draining. And about life-draining restrictions. Instead of a life-giving day of rest. They've made the synagogue, where they gather, into a place full of burdens. Into a place of bondage. Instead of a place of blessing and good. And Jesus is angered. He's grieved. Does it seem odd to see Jesus in this way? That he's angry? That he's grieved at what's going on? I think it's really good to see Jesus this way. Not because we want to see anger or we want to see grief. But it's good because it shows there's some active displeasure in what's going on here. His response is showing that there's something not right here. If he was indifferent, that would be weird. There's evil in the synagogue. There's a man that good could be done to. To do nothing would be a much bigger problem. And so to see Jesus angry here is good. It's his active displeasure of their hardened hearts. He cares enough about their hearts, our hearts, the reader's hearts. He cares enough about doing good that he isn't indifferent to their hardened, hardened silence. He's angry. Grieves him. But he won't capitulate to them and their hard-heartedness. He won't yield to them and their disapproval and do nothing. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the, Lord of, and the Sabbath was made for man to do good. So he is for good in the presence of all those who are angered, who have angered and grieved him. He does good. Look at verse 5. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. And stretch it out and his hand was restored. With this healing, again, what is Jesus showing? He's showing his authority. He is the one with authority. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He can, he can say what happens on the Sabbath, but he's also Lord of all things, right? He has authority. He can say to a hand that's withered, be restored, and it's restored. And that's exactly what he does. And he does it even on the Sabbath. So here's another display of his authority that, that could go out and could soften hearts, that could go out and that could do something different than what's happened up to this point where they keep getting hardened over and over again. Here's another display of his goodness. Here's another display of his kindness that could draw them into seeing him rightly. Here's another display of it. Draw them to repentance. But those who are well have no need of a doctor. And new wine is for fresh wineskins. And so verse 6 
says that the Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. They team up with uh, supporters from Herod's realm. Herod would have been the Roman ruler at the time in that area over Israel. They're going to team up with him. Like, oh, let's find out a way to destroy them. Their hearts are so hard that they oppose doing good on the Sabbath, but they're willing to plot murder on the Sabbath. We don't want to do good, but we can plot murder. That's okay on the Sabbath. They didn't ask that question. That one seems to be an easy answer as well. Man, their hearts are so warped. They're so hardened. They're willing to plot murder on the Sabbath, but they're questioning whether they can get grain on the Sabbath. And I'd like to say that we're different. I'd like to say that I'm different. That my heart is different. But there's a Pharisaic tendency in me. I think there's probably a Pharisaic tendency in all of us. It's a tendency to be slow to suspect our own hearts of evil. Right here are the Pharisees here. In their silence, they're shouting. The problem is out there. You're messing this up. You're breaking Sabbath. You're doing what you're not supposed to do. So what are their hearts doing? They're not suspecting themselves. They're looking outward. The problem is out there. They didn't suspect their own hearts. They didn't say... I might be the problem here. Maybe I'm off in my relation to the Sabbath and off in my relation to Jesus. They kept looking outward. And when we think that the problem is out there, we're on this path, very difficult path, to a hardened heart. So as we look around and say, yeah, Jesus ought to be angered and grieved at their hardened hearts, we need to be careful. Because maybe the kind of heart that he's angered and grieved at might dwell in us as well. Or at least remnants of that kind of heart. The Pharisee tendency is a tendency to lead us to question Jesus' authority. Again, we're okay with Jesus as long as he doesn't challenge us. But what happens when he does? Do we push back and take our own way? That's a Pharisee tendency. It's a tendency that critically looks for something wrong, even in the midst of good. Jesus is healing people. His hand could be healed. He's restoring the Sabbath in a good way. And some of us can have that tendency to be really, really critical and start looking around, even in the midst of much good, and say, well, what's wrong here out there? And these tendencies are exhausting. They are life-draining. They're bondage. If you have these tendencies, I, I feel them in my heart, and it's exhausting. But there's good news. For all who would recognize a Pharisaic tendency and a Pharisaic heart in themselves, there's good news for all those who are sick. The doctor comes for the sick. The Lord of the Sabbath has come. And he did not come to drain life, but to give life. The Lord of the Sabbath did not come to put us in bondage, but to bless, to do good. He came not to burden us, but to give rest. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He came to give us rest. And guess what? He has the authority to do it. Now we have, as believers, a sacred family meal where we are reminded again of the goodness of Jesus' authority as Lord over all. 
He uses his authority as God to take on flesh, to live on this earth, to be despised, to be questioned, to be in the midst of hard-hearted people that should have received him wholeheartedly. He came to do that and to bear the weight of sin on himself on the cross. He came to die for sin. His body was broken so that others might be made whole. His blood was poured out so that sin and hard-heartedness might be forgiven. He is Lord. That's how he uses his authority to die for the sake and for the good of others. And So when we take the Lord's Supper... We are reminding ourselves of Jesus' body that has been broken so that we can be made whole. Of his blood that has been poured out so that we can be forgiven. His body and his blood were poured out so that we could be made one with God. So that we could be restored to right relationship with God. So if you're a believer, if you've trusted in this one who has authority to give life, then we would say, come and share in this meal And rejoice in what Jesus has done on your behalf. If you're not a believer, don't take a part of this meal. It's okay to stay seated. It's okay to be silent. Take Jesus instead. Where you've been bucking his authority, we can say that his authority is actually good for you. It's not just life now, it's life eternal. Believe in him. Trust in him. But don't take this meal. This meal is for believers. Believers, come in faith, and be reminded what Jesus has done on your behalf. Let's bow in prayer together. Jesus, thank you that you are the ultimate authority. God, we see it so clearly in your word as your people We profess it, we acknowledge it, we believe it. And yet at times, Lord, we find ourselves stiffening our necks and turning to our own kingdoms, our own standards. And really, in essence, Lord, we're we're saying that we don't believe it in those moments. Father, we're so prone to to look at the Pharisees and, and just to wonder how in the world could they be so evil and so obstinate and so rebellious. And yet, Lord, as, as Dylan pointed out, Father, we stand in their place too often. God, help us where we turn to ourselves, where we align ourselves with our own kingdoms, our own desires, our own selfish desires and sin. Help us to repent and lay those things before you as the Son of Man as the ultimate authority, as the one who came to show us the goodness of God, his intentions towards us, the goodness of the law, the the benefit of fearing you, Lord, help us to lay down our kingdoms and to submit to yours, Lord. We, We need you, God. We need your authority in our lives, in our relationships, in our checking accounts, in our families. God, you know what's best for us. You've told us, you've shown us, you lived it. Lord, help us to follow that. Help us to believe. And Father, as we take this meal, help us to reflect on what you did so that we could have 
a real understanding, a real relationship with you. You came and you, and you walked on this earth. You showed us, Father, how good the law is. You showed us the good intentions of our Father. And you showed us that we couldn't keep the standard, that we needed something above us. We needed intervention. We needed a Savior. And you were that Savior. You died. You took the penalty that we deserved so that we could experience the love of God fully and finally. And, Lord, now you reign. And we know that one day, Lord, as we look back at what happened on the cross, how you overcame the grave, Lord, we look back and we, we know that there will be a day looking forward that we will dine with you and with your people. We will be free from sin, fully committed to your kingdom and your ways. Lord, help us remember these things as we take this meal. For your glory in Christ's name, amen.